This morning, uh, we're launching into a brand new teaching series. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Colossians. And um, it's just a little book. Um, If you don't know where it is, look in your contents. Uh, You'll you'll find it there. Um, But as we launch into this series this morning, um, really today, I just want to do a bit of an introduction um, of, of what this book is about. We're gonna, we are going to look at the scriptures a little bit, but primarily I just want to do a little bit of an introduction and, uh, and, and really kind of give us a little caveat to, to what we might get from this, uh, this series over the next six or so weeks. Um, and I guess, I guess one of the things uh, that we could think about is, as what, is what is someone like the Apostle Paul, uh, this, the author of this letter, uh, what has he got to say as a first century Jewish person uh, to a bunch of 21st century people like you and me? Um, I mean, what, what possibly uh, could he say, um, particularly with what's happening in our world? You know, we have the tragedy of, uh, of terrorism, uh, um, political unrest. You know, if, if you was to step back just five years ago, would you have imagined we would be where we are? Politically, uh, right now, we probably we probably wouldn't have guessed it, and um, and we're told, aren't we, that we live in a post-truth world. Um, that's according to um, uh, Adam Curtis, who um, directed the film Hypernormalization. Has anybody seen that film, Hypernormalization? Oh, none of you have lived. Um, it's on iPlayer. When you go home this afternoon, skip lunch. And watch, hyper, and watch hypernormalization. Um, um, but in that film, one of the opening line, um, the opening line is this: "We live in strange times." And, and, and the truth is, we do, don't we? Uh, the world around us is changing quite dramatically. And so as we, um, as we turn to the scriptures, in this case into Colossians, what does that have to say to us today? And so the Apostle Paul, he, he writes this letter with Timothy um, to, the church, to the church in Colossae. And, and Colossae was, um, was, was situated in what is now modern-day Turkey. And um, it's not actually a church that Paul planted um, uh, it's actually a disciple of his who, uh, who, uh, who, uh, who planted this church, a guy called Epaphras. Uh, now, this letter is likely to be written uh, during Paul's imprisonment uh, in Rome, uh, which was about 60 to 62 AD. And he, he, he ends this letter in, a, in an interesting way. He says this in chapter 4 and verse 18. He says, I, Paul... Write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And as, as we kind of read this letter, and we, we finish with that greeting from Paul, we're reminded of, 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 of just the reality of, of what it meant for someone like him uh, to be a person who, who was going around preaching this gospel of the kingdom. And that the implications of that, um, that, that, that it cost them a lot. He's in chains. I was thinking, what would I put if I wrote this letter? And I thought, well, I, Steve, write you this greeting on my MacBook. 
latte in hand, grace to you. Um, it doesn't sound as good, does it? And so this letter is written by a heavyweight. It's, it's written by Paul, who bears the scars and the chains of following Jesus. Yet he's still concerned with the health of the local church. And so as he writes this letter, there are a number of things and forces at work that he's addressing. First of all, um, he's addressing a group of people uh, called the Judaizers, who basically, when the church was birthed, they would go in and, and they would say to these people, it's great that you've accepted Christ, but now you have to fulfill the law. And so they added to uh, the gospel. And uh, um, Paul actually addresses this in a more robust way in the book of Galatians. But the backdrop of Colossians is that this is going on. Uh, the other force at work is godlessness within the Roman Empire. Uh, and this is kind of a cultural battle that's going on between the t- traditional religious uh, prevailing views of the empire and the r- rise of godlessness. And, and so to get a grasp of this letter we have to understand something of the context and the reality of this thing called the Roman Empire. Now, most of us left school quite some time ago, uh, so I thought we'd have a little history lesson. Um, The Roman Empire ruled the world for um, uh, 1,500 years. And because it existed for so long, uh, the, the remains of the Roman Empire still have um, an effect on us today. Uh, anybody think of anything that still affects us about the Roman Empire today? You know, this is it's roads, roads, roads. Just one answer, roads. Uh, <laughs> I, I was tempted to play a clip from Life of Brian. What the Romans ever done for us? Sanitation? Yeah, anyway, here I go. But... Pizza, absolutely. But roads, you know, roads, let's get back to roads. The first Roman road was built in 312 BC. And then by the second century, there was 50,000 miles of roads leading to Rome. Some right on our doorstep, uh, the A5. It wasn't called the A5 then? Um, I remember I was, I was chatting to someone the other day about school, and I remember at school we were in um, humanities, such a modern subject, and um, the teacher said, where is the nearest Roman road? And I said, the M1? And uh, he launched a board rubber at me. Um, And so, um, no, but the A5, you know, so we, 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 we are, you know, aware of Roman roads in our context. And uh, what those roads did uh, was they built commerce and trade. Um, But they also had a sociological effect, kind of the same way the internet did in the late 1990s. Um, You know, when the internet came to its prime, suddenly the world got a bit smaller and everything seemed to speed up. You know, information was delivered at a different place. And, and a similar thing happened uh, with these roads, that suddenly access to places and ideas and cultures were available, that the roads that they built shrunk society, uh, kind of like us. So those of us who can remember 
pre-internet, you know, the dark times, um, you will know that, that that's what's happened. Um, we could perhaps, perhaps relate to that. The second culture-shaping thing about the Romans um, was the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, which was a celebrated time, a long period of, of peacefulness within the Roman Empire. In fact, the Romans, you know, when we asked what did the Romans do for us, they did a great job at keeping law and order. They created systems around laws. And in fact, um, apart from the, the odd skirmish from the Judean people's front, um, they maintained peace for a long, long time. And um, where am I? Da-da-da. And so we see those two things, those two things uh, that, that kind of were shaping um, the culture of the time and what the Roman Empire was doing. And what Paul does in this letter, uh, and, and what we're going to explore in the coming weeks, um, is, is really he, he, he speaks into a, a cultural moment. And so the first thing that Paul does in this letter is he reduces the importance of the prevailing empire. And so for those people who felt protected um, by by the empire, uh, for those people who felt some security, Paul begins to subvert that. And he plants this idea in the church in Colossae. He He basically says, Rome is not your hope. Rome is not your hope. I think if he was speaking to us today, he would say something like, the prevailing culture around you is not where you're going to find your hope. One Jewish theologian and activist, he said this, human existence cannot derive ultimate meaning from society because society itself is in need of meaning. And so the question is, in a, in a post-truth culture, in a, in a turbulent political season of unrest, in a time when extremism is taken to catastrophic outcomes, where do we find meaning? Where do we dream? Where do we hope? Do we look to the culture, the society around us that's looking for meaning itself? Or do we look somewhere else? And this is where I think the book of Colossians kind of collides and intercepts with, with our lives. And so the one thing I want to suggest this morning that is no matter how unique we think we are, or how clever we might think we are, our imaginations, by and large, have been hijacked by our culture, have been hijacked by the culture around us. And, and, and we see this lived out in the culture uh, in a number of different ways. A lot of the time, our culture, if we could simplify it to its you know, smallest degree, uh, a lot of the time, our culture says that success is found in money, sex, and power. And in the book of, uh, there's a book called Colossians Remix, which is what we stole the title for this sermon series from. Um, it says this, it says, when, when a whole population dreams the same dream, empire is triumphant. 
An alternative to empire requires different dreams animated by a different narrative. And so Paul writes this letter, and he says, you don't have to put your trust in the empire. You don't have to put your hope in the culture around you. You don't have to trust that culture, but trust something else. And so right now, and as I say, in a simplified way, we live in a culture that has a prevailing narrative that that money, sex, and power is what equals success. And so the story we live in is often shaped by the narrative of our culture, the empire of our day. One company uh, that I think does this well in, in kind of forcing to shape our imaginations is Disney. You're all like, he's picking on Disney. Um, um, but Disney have this ability of shaping the way we look at the world. Um, life isn't as simple as wishing upon a star. I don't know if you've noticed that. And anything I do say about Disney doesn't include Star Wars, okay? Um, and, and so, um, <coughs> but I don't know if you know, Disney actually changed the endings of a number of the stories that they animated. I don't know if you realize this. Uh, for example, The Little Mermaid, published in 18. 18- 36, um, by Hans Christian Andersen. Um, the original story of The Little Mermaid is a little bit different. She takes a potion uh, to become a human, so she can dance like no other. And, um, but this comes at a great price, because every time she dances, it's like she's standing on swords and her feet bleed. And she loves the prince, but the prince doesn't love her. He loves, what she, she lo- he loves to watch her dance, and, and he kind of treats her like a pet. And the prince actually marries someone else. And, um, and she's made to dance at his wedding. And at the end, the little mermaid commits suicide. That would make an interesting Disney film, wouldn't it? <laughs> or, or what about, um, <laughs> what about Pinocchio? See, in the Disney version of Pinocchio, he gets his dream and he becomes a boy and he he gets to live with whatever his name is, Giuseppe or whatever his name is, and Jiminy Cricket, and and they live happily ever after. But in the original version of Pinocchio, Pinocchio steps on Jiminy Cricket and kills him. (laughs) And and this is kind of symbolizing the fact that he's abandoned his conscience. And, uh, and, And basically, the events... After that, mean that he, he lives such a, a life of failure that he gets hung. <laughs> um, and, and, and so they're not always as cheery as, as, as we thought they were. But these stories, these stories actually had an intention. Um, these stories had an intention uh, to build, uh, teach life lessons, build character. Can you imagine telling that one at bedtime? Um, but instead, our culture alters the end, so every story ends the same way. You know, when you wish upon a star, all your dreams will come true. What a load of rubbish. Or, or have you noticed how nearly every Disney princess, um, I'm told other than Moana, um, uses her sexuality to get the handsome prince and live happily ever after. 
You see, our culture is continually prevailing this message that money, sex, and power is the answer to everything. And so Paul addresses this issue of empire hijacking our imagination, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. The other thing that Paul addresses in this book is this idea of uh, something called synchronism. And, and synchronism is de- uh, defined this way. It's, it's the attempt to, um, uh, to amalgamate different religions, cultures, and schools of thoughts. And see, when society shrinks and speeds up, just like the Roman Empire was shrinking and speeding up because of the roads... Um, And just like our culture is shrinking and speeding up because of things like the internet, ideologies uh, ideologies and ideas have this ability to kind of get all meshed meshed together. And, 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 And so Paul gives a word of warning to this idea of synchronism. And, and, and so for the Colossians, they're, they're a bunch of people who love Jesus, but they're, they're bombarded with all these other ideas and ideals. And what happens is our culture creates a, a plurality of conviction around faith and belief and what we hope and, and trust in. And we see that this, in this book, in this letter, that that idea is, uh, is, is challenged too. And, um, and so, so all of that really serves as a little bit of an introduction uh, to what we're going to be doing over the next six or seven weeks. And, um, and so if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Colossians chapter 1. I'm just going to look at his opening remarks uh, to the Colossians, starting in verse 3. he says this, he says, when, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard your faith in Christ Jesus and, and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard the true, uh, the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing amongst you since the day you heard and truly understood God's grace. You, heard, you learned this from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so, as I said, Paul is in prison in Rome. And um, as, we, as we go through this, we'll see, uh, you know, he never got to meet this church in Colossae. Um, that he longed to meet them, but he never got there. But he heard some of the great stories of their faith. And so, um, and so with his opening remarks... Uh, it, it, it says this, Paul says this, we thank God, why, verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. See, in the New 
Testament, there's this inseparable link between loving God and loving people. One John, he puts it like this. He says, if a man loves God but hates his brother, he lies and the truth is not in him. And so there's this irreparable link between um, responding to the gospel of Jesus and loving his gospel community, the church. And we can't say we love Jesus and hate his body, hate his church. I, mean, I don't know if you've noticed that, and I don't know if it's just a millennial thing, um, but it's quite fashionable to kind of hate the church. You know, we love Jesus, but we hate the church. It's, it's a popular position to take. And, and so we have this whole generation of people who, who say they follow Jesus, but his church is a bit odd. And on one level, we can kind of see why. The church can do some dumb things, can't it? You know, and we all have weird uncle and aunts. And um, we all have those moments where it's just like face, palm, you know, even Jesus. Um, I heard someone say once that the church is the bride of Christ, but right now she's a bit minging. A bit like that. And in, I couldn't find Paul in his wedding dress, so I got that picture instead. Um, in many ways, a position of antagonism towards the church can feel justified. But could it be that that position means we're just guilty of that synchronism? That we take the bit that we like, and we, the bit that we don't like, we're just going to push over there. Could it be that, that that's what's going on? How many of us as husbands would be willing to admit that our wives have got faults? Chickens! <laughs> some of you, some of you are brave enough to say your wife has got faults. I know, I know my wife has got at least two faults. Um, I've got loads. So that, that's how you save the moment. Uh, save the moment. Um, but you know, I'm close enough to my wife to know her faults, uh, to know her shortcomings, and she and she knows mine. Um, now, it's one thing for me to know my wife's faults. It's another thing for someone else to tell me her faults. You see, the moment anyone crosses that line, that will be fighting talk. <laughs> and, and sometimes I think Jesus feels the same. I think Jesus feels the same about his bride. And you see, the church of Jesus is the bride of Christ. And she might be a little bit minging at the moment. She might be hard to love. She, she might do things to us that cause pain. But actually, one day, she's going to be pure and spotless, without blemish. And so, to love God is to love his people. Uh, it's to love, to love his church. 
And you see, the idea of a believer who doesn't belong in the New Testament is, is just unheard of. It's, 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 it's just not a reality. And so Paul is commending these guys in Colossae. He's saying, you guys, you know, you're known for your faith in Jesus. You're known for your love of Jesus. And you're known for your love for his people. It's so evident. You guys are doing so well. And then he explains why. Why why they should love one another. He says this in verse 5. Because what they hope for is stored up for them in heaven. The reason they love each other is because their hope is found in a bigger story. It's not found in the prevailing story of the culture around them. It's not settling for the empire. It's not settling for the Disney fairy tale ending. They love one another because their hope is stored in heaven. And the good news is, well, that's good news, and there's also bad news. You know, the good news is we're, we're reminded that, that, that there's a hope for the future, that there's a hope to come. But we're also reminded that one day we're all going to die. You know, we're all, we're, it's all going to happen to all of us. You know, I'm either going to be preaching at your funeral or you're going to be crying at mine. <laughs> and, 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 and the reality is none of us are going to live forever. That is part of what life is, as painful and as real as that is. And however responsible we might be, you know, no matter how much Pilates we do and eat well, you know, we'll do Pilates and eat well at the same time, whatever we do, no matter how well we look after ourselves, we're still going to die at some point. And the question is, where do we then put our hope? Where do we put our hope? What story are we going to trust in? You see, in a world like ours, in a culture that is um, drastically changing, the things that we might have put our hope in traditionally are actually slowly eroding away. I don't know if you've noticed that. And I actually think we live in a really unique time. See, there there are plenty of people who who think, you know, believing and following Jesus, that's just a a load of rubbish. You know, um, I'm not going to hope in some God that I can't see or follow some fella that lived 2,000 years ago. But I'm going to put my my hope in something more solid. I'm going to put my trust in something else. I know maybe what people think... I'm going to put my trust in political systems. Uh, that's the real narrative. That's the real story. And yet, in many ways, our political narratives, the political systems around us, are crumbling, aren't they? They're falling, they're falling down. So where do we find hope? Maybe we put hope in the nuclear family. You know, just these people, my people... And that's it. I'm going to hope in them, the 2.4 of us. And yet we live in a generation where the nuclear family is uh, fairly non-existent or slowly in decline. Did you know in 1961, there was 
uh, million lone families, lone parent families. In 2010, so that's seven years ago, there were seven million. And so if we can't put our trust in empire, if we can't put our trust in the culture or the political system or even family, where can we put our hope? Where can we put our hope uh, that remains robust enough when turbulent times come? Where can we put our trust? Where can we put our certainty uh, when certain factions of our culture try and install uh, fear and terror? And, uh, and, you know, when the main story that's driving our narrative is fear, uh, we have a tendency to try and control things. I don't know if you've, you've ever noticed that. When when, uh, when fear holds our hearts, we try and we try and grapple with this idea of a big story, a big narrative. We tend to respond in some different ways. First of all, we can say we can say things like, "If I can't hold it, or taste it, or feel it in my hands, I don't believe it." And so we tend to live a life devoid of a sense of mystery, and we try and hope in in the things that we can control. And, and what tends to happen is we reduce the size of the universe to us um, because that's easy, easier to control. Uh, the other way uh, that we can respond to a, a culture of fear and, and, and fear building up in us is that we can make everything subjective and, and we try and absorb, uh, we try and base our story uh, on what feels right in our hearts. If it feels okay, then it must be safe. It must be okay to trust in. I can hope in this. And you see, both of those kind of responses are driven by fear. And you see, whichever way we go, whether we try and control it through what we can touch, the, you know, the real, the solid, or if we try and control it through simply what feels right in our hearts, both of those responses are missing something. They're missing a, a sense of, of risk. You know, the risk of putting it all out there and trusting we will be accepted. The risk that if we join in this big story, this, this big narrative, can it be trusted? But when all of the other things, the other usual things that we put our hope and trust in are, are tumbling down around us. Do we trust Jesus enough to step into his story? Do we trust him? And so in these times of when terrorists are attacking our cities and our political systems are falling down and Donald Trump is the president of the United States... We as the church, I think we have a challenge and also an opportunity. You see, the challenge to us as the church is, where is our hope? What is our hope in? You know, as things are falling down around us, is there a bigger story? Is there a bigger story than the, the prevailing empire around us, the culture, the narrative that the culture tells us? Is there a bigger story that we can step into? You know, the, the interesting thing that I was considering this week was 
even the Roman Empire fell. You know, and could it be that we're just in a, a generation that's seeing an empire, a culture shift in a dramatic way? And so as, as another empire, another culture is tumbling, who do we put our hope in? Who do we turn to? Who do we trust in? But I also think there's an opportunity because the world around us he knows that the story they're living in isn't working. The people around us realize that that narrative of money, sex, and power isn't necessarily paying off. The institutions that we first, you know, we once thought were unshakable are breaking. And a fear and a lack of control are entering into people's stories. And yet we carry the greatest story ever told. It's the best story, isn't it? Some people would call it the, the meta-narrative. It's the, it's the story of stories. It's not a story of money, sex, and power but it's a story of faith, hope, and love. And as we read through Colossians 1, we see that that's what Paul is presenting over and over again. It's faith, it's hope, it's love. And so as we jump into this book over the next uh, couple of weeks... I really, my, my prayer is that we would learn to put our hope in a different story. That actually there's, there's, um, there's, there's turbulent times ahead and, and I, I don't want to sound like a prophet of doom. Um, but you know, the, there's something going on in there in our world that things are changing, that, that foundations of things that we lent upon, that we relied upon are falling down around us. And we as the church have a, have a response to make. We, we have an opportunity uh, to step into something, to reveal a different story, a different narrative, a narrative that's real. You know, Paul goes on in Colossians, doesn't he? And he says, you know, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. He's making all things new. And that's not like he's not making a new thing, but he's taking what's old and he's making it new again. And that's exciting. We get to be part of that. We get to be part of that story. 